Good evening, everyone, and welcome uh, to the Sydney Opera House. I'm Anne Mossop, uh, head of the Talks and Ideas program here. And it's a great pleasure to welcome you here tonight to a talk in our Ideas at the House series from Jeanette Winterson. Jeanette Winterson is here um, thanks to the wonderful Byron Bay Writers' Festival who uh, brought her out for their event uh, uh, last weekend. Um, she's somebody, I know many of you in the audience would, like me, have leapt on um, Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit when it came out and followed her prolific and extraordinary career since then. She's someone who has a gift for storytelling, is an unparalleled wordsmith, uh, someone who has continued to be a fierce and original voice through the whole of her career, whose um, writing for writing of fiction, adaptations, writing for children continues to delight and inspire us. Her most recent books, Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal and The Daylight Gate, you, how can you not say the title of that book and enjoy it? Um, in a way, uh, that book, a bookend to, to Oranges Are Not the Only Fruit and a wonderful continuation of her story for those of us who have enjoyed following her career so much. So it's my great pleasure to welcome her here, Jeanette Winterson. Thank you Thank you. Hello. Thank you. Thank you. Are you up the top there? I can see you. Thank you. Right back. Thank you. Oh, we got Dame Edna's budget budgies up the top there, I can see. <laughs> Thank you very much for inviting me here. It's a great pleasure to be back at the Sydney Opera House in this marvellous space. I've come 6,000 miles across the world to tell you everything that I know about life in an hour. <laughs> but that's the thing about the work that I do, which is telling stories. Because there's no such thing as linear time in storytelling. If you think about it, we always start with in the beginning or once upon a time, and we immediately move out of that closed space into the wide open space where things can happen overnight or in a thousand years. Now, one of the great things uh, about reading is that time itself, as we know it, the outward, the daily time, begins to slow down or disappear altogether. And suddenly, we are in the very different time of the book, of the story. And everybody here, I know, has had that experience where you sit down to read and you lose all sight of the clock, all sight of your daily life. It certainly happens when you're writing, but it happens to us too when we're reading. And this is a great gift, I think. It's a great gift of books, particularly fiction and poetry, for us. Because we're all living now, aren't we, in a crazy world where we're endlessly watching the clock. And this is quite modern. You know, it's a new thing in our lives that we should be so completely bound uh, by the mechanism of clock time, so that kids say to us, well, why don't you have time to play with me? You know, my godchildren once asked me why grown-ups always said that they don't have time, and they thought that time was like a commodity, you know, oil or water, and that it was running out, clearly, because grown-ups were always so worried about it. <laughs> and to try and help them, at that point, I wrote a book called Tangle Wreck, which is entirely to do with this idea of time as a commodity and time as something which is running out. But that's how we sense it, isn't it? That we never do have enough time. And 
it always seemed to me that when people say to me, oh, you know, I don't have time to read anymore, that that should be a warning signal and not a fact of life. Because what are we doing um, where there really is no time for these things that mean so much to us? In, for me, the idea of time is a place where we can live. It's a place where we can be. It's our only chance at life. I mean, I don't know about you, but we've got, what, 80, 90 years on this planet, and that's about it. There may be life after death, but none of us here can prove that either way. This is our time. You know, and that whole sense of time happening now in the present, that the past is gone and the future isn't here, is so important. And reading allows that to happen. When you're in that space, then you're actually stretching time. There's more happening than can possibly happen when you're watching the clock, when you're racing around. And people say, well, how am I supposed to make this time? How am I supposed to find it again? Um, you know, and it's as crazy as people who say, well, try yoga, get up, a, get up an hour earlier in the mornings, see what you can do with this. But we have to find a way of asking the big questions in our lives, of saying, well, you know, what does it mean to be human? What is being human for? And if I never have any time, then what is this, this 80, 90-year span on Earth? What do I want to make of it? And stories seem to me to be a great challenge to the way that we live our lives. I mean, in there, not only do we find different ideas, different experiences, different emotions, different possibilities, we find a direct challenge to this hustle and hassle culture of the 24-7 economy. And one of the things that surprised me as I've, as I've gone up and down the world talk, talking about books, about reading and about literature is the, is the kind of guilty pleasure that reading has become. It's become something that you do in a, in a rather solitary and furtive way and that actually nobody should know about it because really you should be doing something more worthwhile with your life. Um, you know, when I, because Mrs. Winterson, my mother, was dead against books in any shape or form, you know, I had to learn to hide books. You know, it really was a furtive pleasure because I knew that if they were discovered, um, they would be destroyed, which is indeed what happened to me. But when I first went to Oxford, somebody would knock on the door and I'd be reading a book, quite legitimately, because that's what I'd gone to Oxford to do, to read books. Um, <laughs> And I would have to hide it under the bed. And then I'd remember, I'd think, no, it's not my mother. Um, <laughs> they're not going to come and take it away from me. So why is it that we have this slightly guilty relationship now with reading and people somehow feel that it's, they're not doing the things that they should be doing. This is entertainment value or it's leisure time. But actually, it's not. It's the work of your soul. And it's a bit of a bold word to use uh, these days, but you don't have to be religious to know what we mean by the soul. You don't have to be religious to know what we mean by soulless or to say, I've sold my soul, um, or I've not got any soul anymore, I don't know where it's gone. You know, that part of us which cannot be fed by any of the things that we do in our daily lives is fed by the agency of art, and I think particularly by reading, because nothing else is simpler, nothing else is a more private and direct act than what happens when we sit down with a book and it's just the two of us. It's that intimate space which really is lover's talk. No one else can occupy that space that happens in your head in that private dialogue that you have with the writer 
and with the text. And it's not the same thing as watching a movie or even going to the theatre, because those things have to happen in linear time. There is no choice. You know, even if we pause a movie, we're going to go and put the kettle on or have something to eat or do something else. We tend to watch the thing all the way through in one sitting. When we go to the theatre, we have to watch the thing all the way through. Um, and that has its own value. But what the book brings is something else. It's a different kind of agency, a different kind of possibility. Because think about when you put a book down. Say you've read, I don't know, 100 pages and you have to go and do something else. You put the book down, you know you'll come back to it. And it continues to work with you, to walk with you. And as you carry on with your daily duties, you're thinking all the time somewhere in the back of your mind about what's happening. You're wondering what the characters will do what the next outcome will be. And it's not simply plot-based, because what the book has done is set up an emotional resonance inside you, um, which is at a different vibration, I think, to the rest of everything else that is going on. So it works both as a kind of reassurance um, and as a warning against what's happening in the outside world. You think, no, I do have time, actually. I do have time to read this, and I want to read it. So by making the time for the book, we're actually making time for something much larger, which is this strange agency of the soul. Now, I don't know why you're here tonight. I mean, it's very nice for you to come and see me. Um, <laughs> but I think you must be here because you feel rather as I do that this business of life having an inside as well as an outside is not being addressed by the world that we live in. It can't be addressed by religion anymore because wherever we look in the world, um, religion has become the source of terrible conflict, of, of despair, of crimes against humanity, um, of pain and anguish. It's not anymore the place of comfort and solace, true or not true. You know, it doesn't matter whether you believe in a sky god. You know, those comforts and possibilities that religion offered are being steadily eroded, blown apart um, by the way in which human beings are displaying their religiosity, religiosity, their fundamentalism. So where can we go if we can't go there? I don't think that art is a secular religion, but I think that art has the means of doing that same kind of job, that it allows us to have um, this, this time for ourselves and this time with our inner thoughts, our innermost being, that we wouldn't otherwise have. You know, when you think about how time operates in the mind and for us, and think about how it operates in books, you see the correlation is really a true one. Because things do sometimes feel like they're taking a thousand years to play out. Every child knows that one minute is not the same length as another. It depends whether you're in the maths lesson or when you're in the playground. <laughs> and this simple truth of childhood is then lost, where every minute has to be the same length as every other. But when we read, we do not have that experience. You know that the Greeks thought everything had to happen in the 24-hour unity, um, which it did in their plays. Um, other books have copied that, like Ulysses, where things happen at great length through that long, marvellous, rambling, chaotic, interminable book. Um, but in fact, really, we've only taken up the space of one day. Rip Van Winkle falls asleep, and it's a 1,000 years later. All of that is possible in that compressed, free space of the text. And when you think about your own life, especially as you get older, what is it? that is real to you? What is it that's significant to you? It's not that stretch of time that we've lived through, the 365 days of each year, the 24 hours of those days, is it? You really could compress it into something like an hour, I expect. When you think about all the things that have mattered, the things that have been important, the things that have actually been significant, pivotal, changing, how much time 
did they take up then? And how much time do they take up now in memory? Because our processes, our mental processes, are not at all linear. They are not like some sort of freeway or motorway going from one place to another. They are much more like a maze. We go back and forward in time. Everybody knows that. You can walk along the street and have three, three time zones going in your head simultaneously with no difficulty at all. The space that you're in now, something that happened in the past, something that's going to happen in the future. We inhabit that cross space. Um, and that's the space that is also inhabited by literature. So it try, I think literature is trying to tell us a truth about how the mind actually works, that it isn't in the constrained office, nine to five or nine to nine, as everybody does now, kind of day that we have to pass in normal life. It's something else, and it's that that needs to be recognized and needs to be fed, because memories, of course, lie side by side according to their emotional significance. They don't lie side by side according to the clock and the calendar. We remember things that are separated in time. And literature is very good at offering that process in its, uh, in its flashbacks, um, in its reflective power, in the way that it's able to elide situations in the novel, in the way that it's able to juxtapose things in the novel so easily. Um, Proust is the obvious example, but things that are simply separated are actually brought together. And when we read this, we feel great relief. Relief because we feel that something is speaking to us in a way that is true about our lives. And surrounded as we are by facts, we're always looking for truth. We can't help it because we are meaning-seeking creatures. My mother, the late Mrs. Winterson, lived in end time, which was difficult for the rest of us because she was always waiting for the apocalypse. <laughs> and if you live in end time, you can never relax. You know how some children leave presents out for Santa Claus at Christmas? Um, we didn't do that. I used to leave out presents for the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, because I was never sure when they would be coming. And I thought in some way that I might be able to appease them, you know, um, if I left them a pie. I'm not sure this would have worked. But, but Mrs. Winston encouraged this because she wanted us to believe that the heavens and the earth would be rolled up like a scroll, that time was going to end at any moment. And yet, within that sense of it ending at any moment, uh, there was supposedly great richness because we'd be waiting for Jesus. It's partly because she lived through the war, I think, and, and time was always ending at any moment. But unfortunately for Mrs. Winston, the war did not end in 1945. It continued, um, and it was still going when I left home. And what we used to do at home, one of the things that really made me start thinking about time, is that we used to have to rehearse for the apocalypse. <laughs> you know, in the 1950s, uh, when you used to get those uh, nuclear warnings about what to do, and you'd have to get under the table and put the, the counterpane over the top of it, you know, and a fruit bowl on top of that, and then everything would be all right. Um, people would shelter from the impending doom. That's what we did. And so we used to, she'd come to the bottom of the stairs, and we didn't have a trumpet, um, so she would generally use a comb and paper. And, <laughs> stand at the bottom of the stairs and blow on it. And that was the call for the apocalypse. So I used to run downstairs, get in the cupboard under the stairs with her. Um, and then we'd sit there for an hour. Nothing would happen. We'd just sit there. So that gives you a very different relationship to time. <laughs> and I once asked her why 
we had to live in this horrible little house in this horrible little town. And she said to me, it doesn't matter because soon it will all be blown up. <laughs> and this was meant to be offered to me as reassurance. <laughs> and sometimes I'd ask her questions about the universe. And she always said to me that the universe was actually a cosmic dustbin. And I thought about this for a while and I said, well, is the lid on or off? It was on. <laughs> so there was no escape until the end of the world. And that's why I began to turn to books, because in there was not escapism, but there was escape into a time that wasn't end time, but a time that seemed to me to be abundant, um, possible, not at all constrained or constricted. You know, there's a lovely translation that... Um, the scholar Harold Bloom has of the Jewish blessing. Um, I don't know if there are any Jews in the audience, but it's, it's really beautiful. Where he talks about uh, God's promise to Israel as being more life into a time without boundaries. And the idea of a time without boundaries, it would still be time, it wouldn't be eternity, but it would be without boundaries, was the thing that I was looking for, both in my own work um, and in the way that I was trying to live. But if that was my negotiation with time, there was also a negotiation with space. And as I was coming across to Australia, I thought, I'd like to read something about history here. And I read about William Buckley, you know, who you all know about, the escaped convict who thought he was going to walk to China, um, ended up really just walking round and round uh, because it's such a big territory. And he went to live with the Aboriginals for 35 years and really became one of them. They revered him because they thought he was one of them because he had a spear um, from one of their um, dead fellows and they assumed he was an ancestor come back. So he was given great privileges. Um, Buckley didn't see any white men for 35 years till John Bateman's forces appeared to try and colonise what's now Melbourne. And of course, they took John Buckley back in with them because they could see that he would be very useful and he was given a pardon. After 35 years, there wasn't much else that they could do. And they wanted him to act as a kind of guide and map maker because he'd lived with the Aboriginals for so long. But then this became extremely difficult because, of course, the Aboriginal maps were not the white man's maps. And they were not about going from A to B. They were psychic states. Um, they were places of the imagination. They were ancestor maps. And nobody could understand why you would want to go 50 miles out of your way to a waterhole. Or why you never went in a straight line from one place to another unless you absolutely had to. And it was this sense, when I was reading it, I was very attracted by this. The, the idea of space mapping being what we make it. This is a line in a book that I wrote. Um, the Power Book, which says, when I was born, I became the visible corner of a folded map. And that's how I thought life was, that it would be that journey that you would have to make yourself. You would have no choice. If you didn't make it for yourself, what would happen? You'd immediately be railroaded into somebody else's journey. You'd be on somebody else's convoy. You know, you'd be going to somebody else's territory. And I didn't want to do that. So the idea of being a folded map and having to map that space was very attractive. And I realized that there is no sat-nav for the soul. You know, you, you can't just put the directions in and hope that you'll get there. Um, one of the problems with the endless outsourcing of life that we do now is we think the solution is somewhere outside. And it never is, not for the big questions, because it can't be. So turning back to books, looking there, not for answers, but for clues, for ways into 
this problem of living, accepting that life is difficult and that it should be, and that thinking is difficult and that it should be, and that there aren't any um, easy solutions, seemed to me that, to what literature was offering, and that literature would be a way for me, and I think for you, to find a way to that other place, whatever it was, wherever I was going, that's why we had talking heads on earlier home, this must be the place, that recognition as we go through life, that this is the place. It may be temporary, it may be permanent, but it's a place that we can be. And we take our books with us, I think. When I left home, I took with me just a few things and a few books. I went to live in a mini for a while because it was better than living with Mrs. Winterson. And the books were in the back. And they were the things that really mattered to me, that no matter how despairing, no matter how difficult, they were the books, they were my connections across time and across space. I didn't feel like I was a poor child with social problems. I felt that I could be Aladdin or Huck Finn or Heathcliff or Hotspur. And in all of this, I would find characters and situations which would somehow illuminate my world. And I think that's what books do for us. They allow our world to be illuminated, mapped forward, without something that is arbitrary or forced upon us in any way. You know, Mrs. Winterson didn't approve of books at all, and books weren't allowed in our house. There were only six books, and most of them were commentaries on the Bible. But she loved reading murder mysteries, and I had to go to the library you know, every week to get her stash of murder mysteries. And I challenged her about this. Um, I didn't see that it was fair that I couldn't read fiction and she could read murder mysteries. And she said, if you know there's a body coming, it isn't so much of a shock. because she was perfectly reasonable in a completely mad way. <laughs> and I thought, what is this shock that's not in a murder mystery? And I realised it was the impact, that complete impact that language offers at its, at its highest, at its best, creating situations for us as readers, which somehow forces out of the neat territory that we like to occupy, the safe spaces that do feel comfortable, and pushes always to the borders of common sense, urging us to cross over, to leave behind the things that are safe, that are known, to go forward with that mapping ourselves, then back into this difficult territory that nobody really wants to do. Of course we don't. You know, we do prefer to have the easy routes, even when they're killing us. You know, we prefer to be in a situation that is familiar. It's very hard to leave, it's very hard to make those choices. But always when you're reading books, um, you sense and you see that there is that negotiation um, with what's difficult and what's possible and the courage to change things, the courage to go forward. You know, the Greeks had a, a very nice theory about marking out what they called a temenos, which was a sacred space, it could be real, um, in that it could be 3D physical, or it could simply be imaginative. It could be a meditative space, and often it was both. And this temenos was where you went um, when things were getting tricky or when you needed to understand something, when you needed that place for your soul. So for me, the books became that temenos. They were both a physical place in that they were, there was the 3D object of the book, which is very comforting to me at that time. But they were also that imaginative place, which I could mark out, um, walled away from any of those other difficulties and trials at home, walled away in its own sacred sense, 
a place to enter, a place of meditation, a place of forgiveness, and a place of possibility, and through the agency of the book. And I still have that. I still make these, um, I suppose it might be temini, I guess, the plural. But I think you need a temenos somewhere. Um, and it might be a favourite book that you go back to that then creates an imaginative space. It might be a poem that you know well, that you recite to yourself, that sets this up. Um, it is meditative, um, but consciously so. And it's a way of drawing yourself out of uh, the world as such and into this breathing space that you need. And that's why I say it's not escapism, but it is an escape. Because somehow we have to devise um, these inner structures for ourselves because the world isn't going to offer them to us. And the idea that reading, therefore, is a luxury seems to me to be a huge insult as well as a misreading about what we need in order to be human, to have these inner structures. Um, this way of creating a life which is both dignified and engage, not some strange ivory tower, but living in the world, but in a way which is not subject to it in all that rush, hassle, all the usual situations. And above all, the Temenos was never stolen ground. It's not something that you can colonize. You have to make it for yourself. Um, it really does belong to you. You can't borrow it. Um, no one else can give it to you. It has to be yours and it has to be made. And that is the kind of independence that we get through reading. Um, and I think we all need that. I think young people really need it. To learn that independence of mind and spirit. It's not just a rational objective situation. It's not just mind. No, it's having something which is deeper. Um, to work out for yourself those things which are important and have, to, have the courage to live that way. You know, nobody needs to live by anybody else's rules. But we do need to live by our own rules. And that's very important, to have a set of ethics. Um, a belief system that is really yours, that you don't cheat on. You know, one of the things about doing creative work that you discover is that it is a kind of lie-detecting system. You can't cheat. It tells you when you're trying to make a shortcut, when you're trying to take the easy way out, and forces you back always into the difficult place, um, the place of hard thinking. You know, Dante in the 13th century was talking about poetry as putting into words things difficult to think. You know, they, they knew it then, it was hard work. And I think it's also about putting into words things difficult to feel, because that's what's offered to us through language, that precision, that exactness, so that we do have the words to talk about our situation, the private situation, the public situation, the domestic situation, the political situation. How are we going to talk about it, avoiding cliches um, and not falling for, for the soft peddling lines of the media? We, have to, we can only do that if we have a language that can do it and we have space in ourselves to do it. You know, what are we teaching our kids? We need to teach them to think. We need to give them the tools to do that. Um, language does it, literature does it. Now, I think one of the, you know, the, the baleful triumphs of soft power is that we don't burn books anymore, um, certainly not in the West. We've just persuaded people that they don't really need to read them. Yeah. <laughs> either this business of the guilty pleasure or that it's just content and we can just get all of this from some other source, some other means, some other way, um, so that the power of the book is gradually undermined and diminished. But you know, we should look back at why tyrants actually do burn books. It's not so much the content, um, though there is that. It's what reading signifies, um, what it is, um, the fear that tyrants and repressive regimes have, that you might be alone 
with a book, that you can't be controlled, that you can't, there's no CCTV working in your brain. Your thoughts can't be monitored in that way. Um, everybody knows that there is that subversive element that comes with being given fresh ideas, imagination being fired up, people becoming courageous. You know, Mrs. Winterson was a pamphleteer by temperament, which is why she wouldn't let books in the house. She knew perfectly well that if I started reading fiction, all was lost. <laughs> and she was right when she said, the trouble with a book is that you never know what's in it till it's too late. <laughs> I'm just going to read to you a little bit about me leaving home from Mrs. W. She is, of course, dead, so it's perfectly all right to do this now. <laughs> when I left home at 16, I bought a small rug. It was my roll-up world. Whatever room, whatever temporary place I had, I unrolled the rug. It was a map of myself. Invisible to others, but held in the territory of the rug, were all the places that I had stayed for a few weeks or for a few months. On the first night anywhere new, I liked to lie in bed and look at the rug to remind myself that I had what I needed, even though what I had was so little. Sometimes you have to live in precarious and temporary places, unsuitable places, wrong places. Sometimes the safe place won't help you. Why did I leave home when I was 16? It was one of those important choices that will change the rest of your life. When I look back, it feels like I was at the borders of common sense. And the sensible thing to do would have been to keep quiet, keep going, learn to lie better and leave later. I have noticed that Doing the sensible thing is only a good idea when the decision is quite small. For the life-changing things, you must risk it. And here's the shock. When you risk it, when you do the right thing, when you arrive at the borders of common sense and cross into unknown territory, leaving behind you all the familiar smells and lights, then you do not experience great joy huge energy. You are unhappy. Things get worse. It is a time of mourning, loss, fear. We bullet ourselves through with questions and then we feel shot and wounded. And then all the cowards come out and they say, see, I told you so. In fact, they told you nothing. The idea that we do the right thing and feel better um, is just not true. <laughs> I don't know how that myth happened. It's much more dangerous than the myth of romantic love. <laughs> Which I don't think is a myth, by the way, but we'll come to that shortly. When I ran away from home, I had to do it because staying was impossible. But going to live in a mini uh, in the wintertime in the north of England was pretty difficult. If you have to do that in the world as it might unfold, who knows, then there's really only one way. You have to remember that a mini has two doors. 
So what you must do is sit in, sit in the steering part and you can write letters on the steering wheel or do your emails, whatever you're going to do now, read your books. But then when you want to eat, you must get out of the door and go around to the other side and get into the other door and eat your food there because that way you've got a dining room and a study. <laughs> So instead of being some schleppy person living in a car, you know, you've, you've got some commodious space. <laughs> and then, of course, you sleep in the back, which is easy if you're my size, could be more difficult here. And you keep your things in the boot. You have to be absolutely dignified and you have to be tidy. It's the only way. In, in all of these disruptions, these psychic states, um, that question of how we hold on to the self is very important. Now, for me, it did come through books. It couldn't come through anything else. But later in life, I had a breakdown which was unexpected. I didn't see it coming. I thought I got away with it. You know, I got away from Mrs. Winterson. I've made a life. I've made a success of myself. Um, I thought I'd run fast enough um, to escape the fire, which always seemed to be following me somewhere. And then... Um, completely unexpectedly, because the big things always happen by chance, don't they, for good or ill. You know, we micromanage our lives, and then something enormous and unforeseen takes place, and we, we have no measure of that. We didn't see it coming, and we don't know how to deal with it. Um, and that's what happened to me. It was a huge breakdown. Someone left me, and the loss of that, that person, triggered the most ancient loss, which I didn't even know was there. You know, and why be happy? I call it the lost loss. Um, it was so deeply gone. You know, when you don't even know that you've got a loss, then you're in trouble. Um, and I also talk about it as the missingness of the missing. I couldn't describe it in any other way. I knew something was missing, but I didn't know what it was. It was just the missingness of the missing. And that's where sometimes language is useful because you can have a precise state, which is also one of complete confusion. Um, and that seemed to me to sum it up. But language left me. I was pushed back into a state where there was no language. It was... A horrible experience of feeling that I was crouched on a windy ledge um, in some time long before language had been invented. I couldn't speak of my situation, I couldn't talk about it to anybody, and I couldn't talk about it to myself. But what was happening to me was all these mad voices were going round and round in my head um, with such threat and isolation. I was utterly locked in it. And the way that I dealt with that, in so much as I did deal with it over time, slowly, I began to realise that I had to do two things. One was set up a dialogue with this crazy creature who was inside me, which I did do. Um, so I started to talk to it as though it was a separate individual, which is quite, it is mad, it's completely mad, but it was the only way I could manage it. Um, and I called her the creature. Um, the creature and I would have huge arguments every day um, about what was happening. And above all, the creature would not come to therapy. I went to therapy. <laughs> The creature did not. So it was completely hopeless. And therapy day would arrive, and I'd say, get in the car. She'd say, I'm not coming. Said, get in the car. No. And we'd have this fact. Sometimes she was two, sometimes she was seven, sometimes she was 13. And I'd say, will you just get in the car, because we have to go to therapy. And she'd say, I'm not coming to therapy, it's a wank. And then she'd stay there. So I'd just leave her. Because, it, because this was a very visual experience. I'd leave her standing at the gate, and I'd go to therapy, and I'd sit there in despair, um, looking at the socks and sandals of my analyst. <laughs> Which really offended me, because... 
he wore, he, he was a he, um, he wore black socks with brown sandals. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know. So I would sit there with my head in my hands looking at his feet and just be, f being filled with hatred. Uh, and I'm sure I should have said to him, I hate everything about your feet, because that might have sparked a dialogue, but it didn't work. So there was no, so I could not make the connection. Um, what I failed to do completely in that situation was say to my analyst that I had tried to kill myself. Now, I should have done that, shouldn't I? But it seemed like a very personal thing to say. And we can laugh about this now because it's over, so it's all right. And later when I was, you know, my girlfriend is a psychoanalyst and, and she looked at me in complete amazement. And I said I had sat there for six months, never saying actually, the reason I'm here is because this is what happened to me. But also it seemed like I, you know, it didn't seem like something you should tell a complete stranger. <laughs> so the whole thing was doomed. So I would go back home and have another row with the creature. But gradually, something seemed to come from that crazy dialogue as language returned to me. But it only returned to me I think, through the agency of poetry because I couldn't read. I couldn't read narrative at the time. Um, poetry was different because it was concentrated. Um, it was exact. Um, it was short. Uh, I didn't have much of an attention span. I'm sure anybody who's had depression or breakdown knows that. It's very difficult. And normally I have wonderful concentration. I didn't and I couldn't do it. So I was really stuck there. So I did the only thing I could think of um, because I'd always had great trust and fidelity in language. So I would stand in front of the mirror and start reciting poems in the mirror and until the crazy voices in the head began to subside. And they did, because the agency of the poem and the power of the language in the poem was much greater um, than the, this destructive, psychotic language that was in my head. And at that point, I became absolutely sure of both the, the healing validation of literature and the fact that creativity is on the side of health, that it's not the thing that drives you to madness, it's the thing that tries to keep you sane, bring you back to sanity, to hold you um, in the place where you can know yourself again, and from that possibly even make some contribution in the world. Look, there are so many crazy people who never contribute anything. Um, and we have this you know, odd idea that creativity and craziness is some sort of link and that all, all creative people are mad. Um, you, know, you look around, most of the world seems to be mad to me. I mean, absolutely bonkers. Um, <laughs> And nobody ever really discusses that, or the fact that creative people are at least managing to do something with their madness um, and give something back to the collective. And I think we all ought to discuss that a bit more. And one of the poems that I read at the time, well, to myself, is a poem by Adrian Rich, which some of you will know. And it was a poem that meant a great deal to me then. And it was this. We are driven to odd attempts. Once, it would not have occurred to me to go out in a boat, not on a night like this. Still, it was an instrument, and I had pledged to try any instrument that came my way, never to refuse one from a conviction of incompetence. A long time, I was simply learning to handle the skiff. I had no special training, and my own training 
was against me. I had always heard that darkness and water were a threat. In spite of this, darkness and water helped me to arrive here. I watched the shore I had left for a long time. Each light, it seemed to me, was one I might have lit in the old days. It's a wonderful poem, and it was one of the poems that really made a huge difference to me during that time. You know, and I've talked to people before about the importance of memorising poetry and the difference it makes. It doesn't matter if you get it right. It doesn't matter, you know, if you miss lines out. The, the point is that then you have it, and it belongs to you, and nobody can take it away. And I really do recommend this as a stress buster. Just get in front of that bathroom mirror. Um, find a poem, one you know, or one you just pick up, or somebody tells you, just, you know, start looking through the poetry books again and say it to yourself in front of the mirror. Mm -hmm. And you can watch the craziness and the stress and the whole wounds of the day um, begin to clear. It works incredibly well every time. But, you know, the wounds themselves don't heal, and that's another one of the really dangerous myths of, of, of our society, this business of you've got to move on, you've got to get over it, you've got to put it behind you, you know, all these sort of seven steps to health and happiness and, you know, how to change your life in three weeks. Um, the idea that the things that have wounded us and that have hurt us in the past go away, we know that they don't. Um, and certainly there's nothing in the reading of, of literature or poetry that suggests that they do. You know, there are so many stories about the wound. You know, one of the ones that I love in Gulliver's Travels is that last story where he's with those wild, gentle horses that nobody can pronounce. I think they're called the Huynims or something like that. Um, uh, and surrounding him are the yahoos, who are really us, sort of brutish, nasty bits of, of um, so-called pseudo-civilization who just want to kill everything and destroy the ecosystem. And Gulliver doesn't want to live with the yahoos, uh, unsurprisingly. Um, he loves the horses. But when he leaves, as he knows he must, one of the yahoos shoots Gulliver um, in the back of the knee. And when he gets back into uh, England, as it is, that wound won't heal. In fact, he goes to live in the stables with the horses because he's so disgusted at the world of men. But the, the wound itself is a constant reminder of both where he's been, uh, what he's brought back with him, um, and what seems to matter. And you know there are so many stories of the wound. I mean, even Harry Potter has a scar. Um, we're known by those wounds, by those scarred places. And what I think is the truth of it is that the thing doesn't heal, but it stops being infected. And that's the difference. So you've no longer got this pus-filled thing um, which is contaminating the whole system, the whole self, and can somehow take over the entire territory in this, this baleful, viral fashion. You've got something that is damaged and that you know it's damaged, but you can work with it. And working with that place, um, that damaged place, sometimes that destroyed place, the place that was a place of destruction, is what you learn to do um, through creative work. And that creative work is whether you know, you're, you're an artist or engaged in any way, or whether you're working creatively with your own life, giving that space um, for other things to happen, you know, outside of the endless cash nexus um, and the crazy world that we live in. So the wound doesn't go. And I don't think it should go. I don't think we should want it to go. Um, it's not about flaunting it. Um, you, no one ever need know, but we know um, that that place is also one 
of strength and of possibility. Um, you know that wonderful story of Prometheus where he's chained to the rock after stealing fire from the gods and his punishment is that he won't die um, but every day the eagle will come and rip out his liver and I often imagine that giant bird I suppose it would have to perch on the hip bone wouldn't it and flap its wings to keep itself stable and that there is Prometheus burnt black on the Caucasian mountains under the sun except for the skin on his belly which would be as pale and white as a child's because it would be made new every day um, and that would be the continual place of, of absolute agony he's, he's freed of course in the end but so it is with us. And when we look at those stories of wounding, those myths, which are through everything, you know, the Christ myth is only one of those stories. Um, we should think carefully about the significance of the wound and what it means and how to go forward from it. You know, medieval literature had a better, better line on this because it talks about the dark night of the soul and the night sea voyage. You know, there's a language for the pain that we feel. And that's why I recommend people to go back and to read far beyond whatever is contemporary now. Go back as far as you need to. Um, find other cultures, other times, other histories, and take from it what you need, because literature connects us across time. We're not isolated fragments in space. We're not just floating around on our own rafts. We are connected. Um, and that connection is as strong as you want it to be. And it's there for us. It's on the shelves. We can have it. You know, the thing about the creative life is that for all its virtues, and there are many, it doesn't teach you how to love. You have to learn that yourself, which is rather frightening. And I wasn't able to do that for most of my life. I, I knew about the risky version of love, which I'm going to read to you about in a minute. And I was always fascinated by the business of Freud, where you know, he said, ultimately... Man must learn how to love in order not to get ill. And the idea that love is the thing that prevents you from getting ill is a very profound concept. Um, that connection with another person, that relationship, um, not just in a, a, in a romantic way, in a sexual way, or even in a familial way, but the love of the stranger, um, love for animals, love for the planet, um, that compassion that we feel when we are connected instead of utterly engaged in means of destruction, whether self-destruction um, or destruction of others. You know, love seems to me to be a recognition of the other. It's a quest story. It's always a quest story. But it's the moment when we recognise in the other something of ourselves but that is not ourselves, and it allows us to expand from that narrow place of the ego uh, into a more limitless place, where we're freed always from our own story. You know, we are so caught up in our own stories that the necessity of other stories does seem to me to be like mental health. And we get that twice over. You know, we get it from our reading, from our deep reading, from our wide reading, and we get it from this connection that we can make um, with other people. Hearing someone else's story that's not ours, entering into someone else's life. Um, that seems to me to be one of the lessons of literature. And a preparation, always, for going out into the world and doing it. You know, you sit at home in your armchair reading the book, then you have to go out and make the thing happen. You know, I love you is always a quotation. Because I didn't say it first, and neither did you. So we're left with something which perhaps seems like a cliche. It's such a, so inadequate to say to someone, I love you. 
And yet it means everything. And we have to work with that inadequacy, with that cliche, to expand it into something that's meaningful for us, um, that's meaningful in language and in, and in literature. I love that little, there's a little lyric that, um, it's, it's very silly, that Auden wrote where he said, love requires an object, but this varies so much that almost, I imagine, anything will do. <laughs> when I was young, I loved a pumping engine, thought it every bit as beautiful as you. And it's, I mean, I like it because it's, I like the fun of it, but I also like the truth of it, that love does require an object. And how do we make or allow that object to be real, to be a real three-dimensional person? Um, and I think one of the ways that we do it is to avoid the cliches, and you avoid the cliches um, through learning the language of literature and the language of poetry, and then you won't keep saying the same thing over and over again. Now, there's a great bit of Coleridge, isn't there, where he, he's, he's going through a big depression and he can't love anyone. And he's looking at the, the sunset and he says suddenly, it were a vain endeavour, though I should gaze forever on that green light that lingers in the West. I may not hope from outward forms to win the passion and the life whose fountains lie within. I may not hope from outward forms to win the passion and the life whose fountains lie within. You know, we're at a moment in time now where everything matters. You know, this is a high stakes moment that we're living in. You no, know, we can't change the time that we're born in. This is our responsibility. And we either have to pick it up and work with it or push it aside and hope that somebody else will. But I think this is a moment where everybody has to try and come together to change things, to change things socially, social justice, and to change things ecologically for the planet. Um, you know, Tim Flannery is a great hero of mine, and he's not wrong when he says we're running out of time, that the oceans are broken, and that the ecosystem is under tremendous strain. And what are we going to do about this? Um, and some people say to me, well, arts, it is only about the ivory tower. It's, it's about privilege. It's about withdrawing from the world. I don't believe that. I think that the political and the personal are together, just as feminism always said they were, and that the personal is political and the political is personal. The choices we make in our own life, in our private life, extend to the choices we make publicly. And one of the things that you learn to do through reading is not to accept any story as necessarily being true, but to know that stories change, alter, and that you can change and alter them. You, know, you learn to read yourself as a fiction, as well as a fact. And when you do that, you're no longer confined in the same way by the old stories. You think, no, if this is a narrative, I can tell it again. If this is a story, I can change it. I can change the story because I am the story. And you take back that agency. It's not dependent on being a writer. It's dependent on knowing that everything is a narrative, everything. I mean, advertising has learned that to a very baleful effect, um, that we're continually conned into buying things that we don't want because the story is so compelling. But suppose we started telling the stories that we need to hear about ourselves as human beings, what a human being is, what being human is for, about our planet. We could change it. I'm not sure why globally um, a bunch of madmen are in power. I'm really not sure. <laughs> 
but I know that there's more of us. You know, if 85 people um, control more wealth than the poorest half of the entire planet, that's only 85 of them. <laughs> yeah, that seems to me to be changeable. You know, it seems to me to be something that we could affect. And what I never want is to see people lose hope or despair, especially young people, or to feel that there is nothing that can be done, that we're, we're in some passive place where the governments we elect can do absolutely nothing against the corporate power. You know, we've seen that in America. Obama can do almost nothing, very little. You've seen it here in Australia, um, where your government is selling you to China and seems to care nothing about the coral reefs because Gina Reinhardt needs more money. You know, we're in a situation where we think, well, what can we do? Because policy um, is being separated from politics and global corporations know that they can simply move out and go somewhere else and they threaten governments with that. If governments don't do it their way, they'll relocate, they won't pay any taxes, I mean they don't pay any taxes anyway, but they'll pay even less than they do. And we're left looking at the situation thinking, but what is there? Now, for me, the wake-up call is about living as consciously as possible and being as full of energy as you possibly can and not thinking, there's nothing I can do except get through the day and look after my family. It's important. But we also have what I think now is a global responsibility, each of us. And that stretches from the food you put on the plates, from the stories you tell your kids, to the way we live and to how much we're prepared to get involved in the world, in the world of politics, in demonstrations, in saying, no, we won't have this. And the stories we read, the stories we tell each other, can really make a difference here. It's not just that we're connected back into the past, it's that we can imagine a world which is different to ours. Because all of life is propositional. It isn't handed down on tablets of stone from a sky god. And none of this needs to be the way it is. It could change. And we could be the generation that changes it. We could tell our kids, whatever happens, we're not going to leave it this way. And we can encourage our kids to believe that, I think, by giving them a literature and a language which empowers them to do so. None of this is a waste of time, because this is the time we've got. Now we're back to the beginning where we started this evening. What time have we? this. Now, what do you want to leave behind? What stories do you want to tell your kids? What stories do you want to tell yourself? And wouldn't you trust a book you know, to tell those stories to you so that we can tell those stories for a new generation? Thank you. Well, it's very hard even to speak after that uh, conclusion, let alone to follow that. But we do have time for some questions and discussion from you. Could we have the lights up a little bit, please? And if you have something that you would like to uh, add to the conversation, to ask Jeanette, um, please come to one of those microphones. Um, but before we start, Jeanette, I just want to ask you, you've spoken so eloquently about the power of language, the power of books to be um, a place of, of private solace and reflection and consciousness, and particularly the power of poetry. Um, 
you've talked about the decline, in a way, of books. And another thing that I see very much is the decline of poetry, as in particular, that sense of poetry as written and spoken. Do you see that as reversible? I mean, is this, what, is this your call to arms to reverse that decline, the importance of, of, the importance of books and poetry? Everything's reversible. You yeah. know, we've still got time to do that. But, you know, I'm not sure that it is declining. It looks like it. But I think that might also be the propaganda machine to persuade us that it's declining. Because, look, everybody's come out tonight. You know, people, we're reading books, we're writing books, we're buying books. Um, in the UK, you know, there's a huge upsurge uh, in poetry, both people writing poetry, uh, people reading poetry. Um, I think there's a vanguard starting. I think people are saying, no, you know, we've, we've had enough of this status quo. Um, we don't want to lose books. We don't want to lose the life of the mind, life of ideas. You know, we don't want to give it all over um, to news media. Um, we want to have something for ourselves. So I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I think that, you know, there are vested interests. I, I really do believe this. I didn't used to believe in these conspiracy theories, but I do now. I think, I think there are real vested interests to make people just feel completely passive um, and that they can just have bread and circuses. You know, just like Marx always said, that we you know, would just all sit there, you know, with our wired media and go on Facebook um, and have a round of golf every now and again and just hope that we'll hang on and, the, you know, science will solve everything and it's not about us. Um, I think people want that to be the case, not us, but, you you know, there are vested interests that would prefer if we were all passive and that we were manipulated by fear and terror into doing nothing at all. But that's not how it's going to be because you know, every time there's a new generation, I think that generation has hope and spirit. And even though my generation have left a really big mess for the generation now of young people, they're not afraid of it. They think, yeah, we can solve this, we can change it. Um, you know, and that is the great thing that, you know, these. Oh, miserable, I mean, these miserable old white men, presumably they'll die, won't they? Some of those 85 are quite old, so... Um, I was reading somewhere that, you know, globally, uh, the, you know, the, 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 the white men who rule is actually make up... Only, uh, the educated white male elite make up only 7% of the population. It's not very much, is it? No, so rise up, huddled masses. You know, and the thing about <laughs> the thing about social media now and the internet should be should be entirely for good. The globalisation part of our lives could be for good because we can connect. We know that we've seen it through social media. We can connect and we can organise and uh, we can get out there. We can use it. You know, it doesn't just have to be a plaything. It's not just there to make billions for Mark Zuckerberg, is it? <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> You know, this, I think 70% of the internet now is pornography. That is so upsetting. How have we let that happen? This brilliant, beautiful tool. You know, what is it about human beings? We have a great idea, like we split the atom. Instead of making free energy, we make the nuclear bomb. Great. Um, every time we come up with a good thing, we manage to turn it into something which makes a lot of money for some people, causes a lot of misery for other people, and we miss all the great benefits. You know, we could have free energy now. It's so easy. But there's no way that the energy companies are going to let us have free energy. So we're going to have to try and persuade them to do that. Mm. We'll take a question from microphone number four, please, up here. Good evening, Jeanette. My name's Alix, and oh. I work for an environmental campaigning organisation. So I've been very heartened this evening to hear you talking about um, empowering us all uh, to think about the food we're putting on our plates and the message we're teaching our children. And um, on the comments just now about uh, the uh, old white men <laughs> who are currently um, ruling our planet, 
I was wondering, as um, a young woman in that environmental movement and in a political campaigning movement, um, if you have any other thoughts or ideas um, or inspiration for um, women and young women in the world of how we can get to a point where um, it's not just the, the white men in power. Well, for the young women in the world, I'd have to say, um, don't be afraid to tell everyone that you're a feminist. Um, you know, it's, that, it's very important. You know, feminism is a political movement that, that wants to make itself redundant. You know, we do want to get to a point where we don't need feminism, but we're not at that point yet by a long way. I think you've got one woman in the cabinet here, haven't you? And I discovered that your Prime Minister is Minister for Women. <laughs> and I was told that this is because he has three daughters. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, but so did King Lear. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, Britain's not much better. I mean, Cameron has now shoved a few women into cabinet because we're coming up for an election next year. But, you know, he only puts the kind of women in, you know, the, the sort of Margaret Thatcher types. They're not, they're not women as we would generally understand the term. <laughs> um, you know, it's a, it's a version of Stepford Wives, isn't it? I mean, they all take their pill at 11 o'clock when the siren goes. Um, and they're not going to threaten the status quo at all. Um, but we have to threaten the status quo. I see you've got um, a Congress for Families happening in Melbourne soon, which <laughs> says that feminism is, in, is indeed a malign influence in society, and it does threaten the status quo. Well, I hope it does, um, because it needs threatening. I mean, it's clear we can't, I mean, clearly we cannot go on like this. Um, and so the idea that we should threaten it is a good one. And that this business, you know, you've just asked me about young women, I'd like them to say, yes, we're feminists, and to look at why they're feminists. You know, it's not 100 years yet since we had the vote. That seems to me to be a big deal. You know, women are still paid a lot less than men. They don't break through the glass ceiling in the same way. Um, they don't get promoted in the same way. There's still huge inequality. So why it's time to put on your killer stilettos and not worry about it, I don't know. Now, so for those women who are doubtful, I'd say look at the achievements of feminism. Just do a bit of history and then decide for yourself. Um, but just don't believe that babe culture will solve everything. From number, microphone number three up here. Um, the, I love your writing. It's poetic and beautiful and deep and deeply thought through. I think it's beautiful That's and amazing. Good. <laughs> And one defensive comment at first, there are a few of us old white guys who are part of the revolution. That's very true. It's true. Now, the question I have for you that I'd like your point of view on is that through the ages, the classes that have supported tyrants and raised them have been generally highly educated readers. And so... There is a wonderful romance, which I participate in as a writer, because I am a writer, that you can change the world with literature. But when you look at history, an enormous amount of literature and the attitudes around it has produced hierarchies which have supported tyrants and have been the foundation on which tyrants are, are able to rule. Um, because almost all of the people who are in that 1% or whatever, are highly educated and are readers. 
So right. where does that fit with your hope that literature will save the world? <laughs> it will. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Now, one of the things that does concern me now, uh, and, and it's part of the business, you know, the whole supposed e-book revolution, which we're told is a new Gutenberg, is that what we're doing is pulling books off the shelves and away from readers, whereas Gutenberg was about putting them on the shelves and for readers. And I think that will actually create a new global elite, which is even scarier than the one we've got. Because if you're educated or if you've got the right family, um, the right circumstances, then you'll always be able to find books and ideas. And certainly, you will use them in whatever way you see fit. But if you're not educated and you don't come from the right family, and, and increasingly, you know, the, the whole um, underprivileged underclass is growing and growing, then you won't find books in the way that I did because they won't actually be visible. You know, for me, as a poor girl growing up in a working-class northern town, books were visible. And I could go into the library, there they were, and I knew that this was a repository um, of knowledge and ideas. You know, there was English literature in prose, A to Z. That was really important. Um, the fact that we could only have six books in the house, the fact that it was all discouraged, um, was undercut marvellously by the fact that the libraries existed. They were so important to me. And, you know, the whole business of educating the working man was really you know, at the heart of Marxism. We mustn't forget that. You know, Marx wanted to see education. Um, that was why in Manchester, you, know, you have the first public library in England. It was paid for by the working men, um, by the trades unions who actually raised the money for the building and then filled it with books, workers' extension lectures, coming out of a place where we would educate working people to have ideas and to discuss them, and there would be that vibrant community um, of readers and thinkers which would not be about an elite. Now, if you, I, I agree with you that that was completely undermined, but it shouldn't have been. No, it's not to do with the fact that only the elite read and therefore they've read all this marvellous stuff. I don't think they have. I mean, if you go into your elite now, if we were to go and talk to David Cameron or... Tony Blair or even Barack Obama or Tony Abbott or what's he called? That Brandass or Brandeis? What's his name? I don't think they're reading very much anymore. I don't think that literature is, is high on the agenda there. Certainly in England, they don't do any culture whatsoever. That's why we have the Department of Culture, Media and Sport. Because they think it's all the same thing. And that's why they cut funding, because they don't think that it matters. Um, you know, one of the things that we really have to do, I think, it's not just about a utilitarian education for our children, for people. It's, it's to get people back into the world of ideas um, so that we can all be using literature, philosophy, to create something which is different and interesting and not leaving it to an elite. Of course, you can twist anything. You know, it's like the Bible and Shakespeare, isn't it? You can make of it whatever you will. Um, but... We need more people, not fewer, to have access to all of this so that we're changing things um, from a democratic level rather from the hierarchical level that you're talking about. Hitler was a, liked reading, but only certain things. And I think you'll find that books by Jews, for instance, weren't on the list. There's a lot of Jewish literature. So what I would like to say is let's look every time, every time a revolution fails, let's look at why 
And we're often finding that what happens is that the education part of it has failed, that we haven't got access to ideas, that the thing becomes very narrow and dogmatic and it doesn't carry forward. Now, the more that we can educate people, get them in, get, get them to really think, learn and know, not these two-year utilitarian degrees that we're moving towards, that will absolutely serve a global elite. Um, you will have an uneducated underclass and you will have a few people who have access to everything and that will make it harder and harder for change to happen. Uh, not easier. So I think it's a bit more complicated than tyrants reading books. You know what, I sort of wish they did. I mean, look what happened with Scheherazade. Every night she was meant to be beheaded. Every night she told a story and the tyrant didn't manage to behead her. And at the end, he says, you're absolutely right. Um, women are a lot better than I thought. <laughs> What's the next question? From number two, microphone number two here. Um, my well, I can't see. Oh, sorry, we're sorry, right, down here. Hi. And I think I'm the only child in the entire building at the moment. <laughs> Why? Have they all gone to bed? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, That's sorry. very good. That means you can be the next Prime Minister of Australia. <laughs> yeah. I which think we need. That might help a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I think it would. Um, I'm going to ask you a, children, a question about a children's book. Is that okay with you? Yes. Um, with Tanglewreck and Battle of the Sun, where did you get the ideas for the children? And were, they, were they from your own experience or did they just come from someone else? Well, you know what? I'll tell you a thing about writing, which is really straightforward, and there's a lot, there's a lot of hocus-pocus around it. It doesn't matter whether you're writing for children or adults, right? Everything has to come from the place that you are because there is no choice. You know, there's, there's, there's you know, some of this bogus idea of things being objective and subjective, but it really isn't so. Both the things that you experience and the things that you invent are part of you. You know, whether it comes out of some sort of miraculous fantasy of your mind or whether it comes out of some experience that you then remake into something else. Um, it's all coming through you, you the person. You're the person who writes the story. Um, you know, th there is nobody out there who's going to write it for you. It's you. So... When you're writing, whether it's for kids or for adults, what you do is you think of the most exciting thing that you can think of uh, on any particular day. This is what I do. And then you start writing it. Because if you're not bored, the audience won't be bored. If you are bored, the audience will be really bored. So it doesn't even matter if it's in sequence. If you go home and write a story, so you think about something really exciting, think about the character that you want to make. Um, that character will be based on you. It always is. You know, I mean, people say to me, look, is Orange is not the only free autobiographical? Uh, yes and no. But, you know, I am as much, say, Silver in Tangle Wreck um, or Gabriel as I am Henri in The Passion or as I am Jeanette in Oranges. They're, they're versions. They're cover versions. They're all parts of me, which then, like, little bits of mercury get spotted off into new and different stories but you work from the self that you are you see and that's why I'd say to you before you become prime minister <laughs> read as much as you can because the more that's in here uh, the more that can come out there and if it's not in here it ain't going to go anywhere because it doesn't exist. So that's why you need to be as broad and wide uh, as possible, even reading things that you don't like and you're not interested in, because from that you'll make, you'll make something of it. You know, at the time I was writing for some kids that I know and love, um, and I, I wanted to conjure a world for them um, where they could be the hero of their own life.
We'll number take a final one. question from number one, but I see the second child in the audience is up there, so we might, <laughs> we might try and take that very quickly afterwards. But first, down here at number one. Yeah. Oh, hi, Jeanette. Hello. Um, my name is Claire. Uh, I was thinking, my question's from the point of view of I'm a university journalism student mm. and I do a lot of writing, and I was rereading your autobiography recently and you were speaking about um, the, the notion that um, the received idea that women always write about experience and uh, the compass of what they know, while men write uh, wide and bold, the big canvas, uh, and they experiment with form. I was wondering if you still thought that was a kind of um, preconceived idea about writing to do with women, or if you think that we have kind of combated that enough? Well, I think it's a bigger problem. See, I think women are still a preconceived idea. <laughs> um, and that's something that we've got to bust through because uh, it's part, women's magazines are partly to blame. The whole culture is partly to blame. I mean, we have so many ideas about what being a woman is and usually we're being, busy being told what being a woman is um, and, and told about our situation or our place. And that's something that obviously has to be counted um, at every possibility. But yes, I think so. I mean, I think if you're... Women are often told that, that what they're writing is confessional or autobiographical. Um, whereas if, if, if men are writing about things that are personal, then it's profound and intimate. <laughs> you know. um, and it, you know, it's, be, it's bravely exploring those deep places in the self, whereas a woman is just yakking on about her life. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's the way that we describe the same thing, the same action, depending on who does it. Um, or, you know, the, uh, it's why in, in a woman, ambition is often described as arrogance. You know, uh, um, or, you know, we don't, it's women who are bossy. We don't call men bossy. You know, so we've got all these different, different pejorative ways of reading behaviour. Um, and that does happen in the way that, you know, we tell stories. And you see, overwhelmingly, readers are women. There is no question of this. It's, it's an empirical fact, um, especially for fiction. Women read fiction. Um, men, by and large, do not. Some men do, but by and large, they don't. And when they do, they don't largely read fiction by women. There was a marvellous survey in GQ about this, so I speak from knowledge. Um, <laughs> but, and it appears that in, globally, only 29% of people doing in, uh, English literature uh, are men, so that means there's a lot of women doing English literature. But then, when you when you then you push that through and you look at how many writers are men, how many university lecturers on literature are men, you find that the thought the whole thing twists again. Um, so we're always in a slightly distorted situation. And that's why I say, look, I want a world where everybody's reading everything. I really do. I want men reading women. I want women, women do read men. You know, we should be reading books by people who, who are gay, who are straight, you know, whether they're old, they're young. It shouldn't matter. That is the body of experience, knowledge, in, uh, of invention available to us. And we should have it all. But in fact, we're always labeling uh, our experience, narrowing it down and saying, oh, this won't interest me, that won't interest me. And, you know, and that's very bad. It's bad for our minds, um, but it, it, it is particularly bad for women who are often just sort of pushed to the side because men think, oh, I won't read that, you know, it, it's, it, it's a women's book, you know, you have chick lit, you know, the whole idea that, that there are these subjects which only women could possibly read. And if there's a baby in there, um, it'll be a, a women's book, you know, if there's a gun in there, it's for everybody. <laughs> so, 
you know, that's a bit of a problem. So, but it'll, I hope that it will change. You know, again, it's this business, we, ha there's, we have to keep pushing the edges of it until we get into the centre of it. So it means women writing, women reading, and women, women being very vocal about the sort of things that they want to write, you know, and the, the bigness of that. We'll take a very quick question from the, the next, the, another future Prime Minister of Australia upstairs. Oh, that's at good. microphone three. That's great, that's two of them. Hello. Hello. My name's Leo. I was wondering what happened the first time Mrs. Winterson caught you reading. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Are you having trouble at home, Leo? <laughs> Is it okay for you to read at home? You don't have to hide the books? No. No, no, that's lucky. And you obviously come from a good family and you'll go far. Um, <laughs> Mrs. Winterson and books, oh dear. I mean, when I first, when I wrote Oranges, you know, when she was in the phone box, I was in a phone box, she was in a phone box, and you know, she said, it's the first time I've had to order a book in a false name. Uh, you know, I really struggled with Mrs. Winterson, but in the beginning, as long as it was books about the Bible, Leo, or it was the Bible, then I was all right. But if it was anything else, then I was really in trouble. And look, I'll tell you the story because you don't know it. A lot of people will know it, but you need to know it, I guess. Um, I used to smuggle books into the house so that I could read them because I couldn't do everything in the library, although I did a lot. Um, and if you, I don't know what size your bed is, but if you've got a single bed a standard size, right, and a collection of paperbacks. You can get 77 per layer under the mattress, <laughs> right? You could try this at home, I don't know. It's worth it. I mean, you know, you're not busy in the evenings. And <laughs> so I, that's what I did. That's where I was hiding my books so that Mrs. Winterson didn't know how much I was reading. So I go down the library to uh, schlep back the bag of murder mysteries and take my opportunity to read there. And then I'd start hiding the ones under the bed. Um, but it was going to go wrong. Um, now, Mrs. Winston went round our house at night with a flashlight. There was no reason for her to do this because we had electricity. Um, <laughs> but it made everything look like a Hitchcock movie. <laughs> so as soon as we'd all gone to bed at some very early hour, she would go up and down with the flashlight. You'd see it playing on the windows or coming up the stairs. No sound was ever made. Um, one night she came into the bedroom to do her usual, you know, quick look round like a member of the FBI or the Stasi. And she realised that my bed had risen visibly. <laughs> and this is because the books were bringing me up in the world. And there was a book sticking out. She pulled the book, the corner of the book, the whole thing toppled down. And me with it, dog came in, you know, crisis, chaos, tragedy then followed because that's the moment when she took all of the books and threw them into the backyard and set fire to them. Uh, she just poured, we had, you know, in a kerosene stove because, and she poured the kerosene over it and set them on fire and they burned that night and that was everything that I'd saved up for and collected. So that was, that was my books um, and that really was the end of that in terms of reading for me for a while because I could no longer bring anything into the house. But it did do two good things. First of all, when I looked at them all smouldering away and burning like that, um, I thought, fuck it, I can write my own. <laughs> so... That was good, because that set me forward. And that's also when I realised that I had to start memorising text, because it was inside me and she couldn't take it away. 
Uh, and if it was outside, somebody was always going to destroy it. So that is more or less what happened when Mrs. Winston realised that I was reading books. Thank you so much to all of you for your questions, particularly uh, we'll be looking out for the future politicians. Um, thank you to all of you for coming, um, but most of all, please join me in thanking Jeanette. She will be signing books in the foyer. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.